0: You are listening to The Great Reset, Brotherhood. Chapter 1 When Good Men Do Nothing Robert Herold sat with several other soldiers in a dilapidated barn, the wooden planks barely holding against the wear of time. They had all spent the night there, huddled for warmth and feigned comfort, as the dim morning light of the German countryside started to filter through the cracks in the barn walls. To his left, one of the men was passed out, a near-empty bottle of vodka slipping from his limp hand. Across from him, two other men were quietly rocking back and forth, sobbing at opposite ends of the barn. Robert, who had chosen a spot nearest to the barn door, had spent the night writing. Several crumpled pieces of paper lay near him, along with shavings from his worn-down pencil. He knew it wouldn't be long now. This was his last attempt to set the record straight. Taking what remained of his pencil, he began to write, My dearest Olivia, I have attempted to write this letter a few times now. The first letter was filled with anger. The second was ripe with fear. And the last... Let's just say it went to a pretty dark place. But my final thoughts won't be of despair. They will be of hope. A hope that my defiance meant something. Not in a way that will change what's happening here, but perhaps in a way that might save my soul. I don't really understand why my life has to end this way. All I did was set a boy free. You should have seen him. A sickly, scrawny looking boy, just a few years younger than John. I was tasked with guarding him during the intervention in Munich. An intervention that I now understand was meant to wipe the slate clean of all who might cause trouble. This boy that was wrapped up in it all, I let him go. And for that, my life must be given in return. I love you more than you'll ever know. And please, if you find this message, tell our son that his father died as a man and refused to live as a brute. Just as he was writing the last line, the sound of footsteps and barking dogs broke the silence. Robert hastily shoved all the other papers into a side pocket, folding the final letter and tucking it securely into his breast pocket. The sound of chains rattling filled the air, followed by the clicking of a lock. The barn door swung open and a flood of morning light washed over them. Standing at the doorway was a squad of men, wearing uniforms identical to Robert's, but marked by makeshift blue armbands tied around their right arms. One of the men removed his helmet, revealing a freshly shaved head. Straining to hold back one of the snarling dogs, he declared, Let's go, Harold. You're first. Robert got to his feet and stepped outside. He was immediately flanked by his uniformed escort, and they walked him a short distance to the edge of a forest, where a freshly dug trench awaited. The bald man handed off the dog to one of his comrades, then guided Robert to the edge of the trench and positioned him. He paused for a moment, ripping off his own blue armband. Holding it out, he asked, Do you want a blindfold, Harold? Robert took the piece of cloth, studying its ragged texture for a moment. Then, with a determined flick of his wrist, he let it fall behind him into the abyss below. You know, William, he began, locking his gaze into the other man's eyes. I'm pretty sure I want to witness all of this. A pause hung in the air, charged with tension. I mean, after all, we can't all just turn a blind eye now, can we? In that moment, Robert saw the one emotion he had longed to witness, the emotion that, he knew, would never haunt him. Shame. Chapter 2. Big Brother. You're insane, John Harold sneered, his voice a distorted crackle over the secure link. He was doubled over in pain, blood dripping down his face. The image of his battered body was being broadcast into a dimly lit room a modern chamber starkly furnished with angular furniture and a single glowing screen. Standing poised in front of the screen was Belinda Barrett, dressed in all white, a rarity that amplified her inscrutable expression. A subtle smile danced at the corners of her mouth, a clandestine admission of the pleasure she took in her artful orchestration. Insane is not what they call me here, Mr. Herald. You see, the Germans and I are more like family. Some even call me... Just then, the screen went black. The overseer's eyes narrowed into slits. Blackwell, what happened to the uplink? Her voice was calm at first, a chilling undercurrent of threat beneath the icy surface. Simon Blackwell, dressed in a dark suit that contrasted sharply with Barrett's all white, moved swiftly to a landline at the back corner of the room. He picked it up, dialed, and waited. As he muttered into the receiver, Barrett didn't break her gaze from the blank screen. This was her moment. She had no intention of letting it slip away. "'Well, Blackwell?' Her voice carried a sharper edge now, punctuating her rising impatience. Simon spoke cautiously. "'It's dead. The operator can't reconnect us to the compound.' Her fists clenched, gripping tight. "'Give me answers, Blackwell. What could have caused this?' "'Must be a blackout,' Simon ventured, keenly aware that presenting any theory was better than nothing. "'But don't worry. The compound has backup power. Old diesel generators. They'll just need to be flipped on by the staff on site.' and the recording. It was finished before the blackout hit. We wrote it straight onto a floppy disc. She released her hands, feeling a resurgence of control. Good. We wait for the on-site team to respond then. It was only minutes later, when a shrill beeping shattered the silence of the room. Simon moved to answer, but Barrett was faster, gliding past him to snatch up the receiver. She listened, her eyes narrowing as the librarian on the other end recounted the events. Gunshots, an escape attempt, an explosion. The scapegoat was dead, the recording was destroyed. However, aerial surveillance had located the getaway vehicle. The overseer hung up without uttering a word, walking back to the centre of the room. Her mind was a cyclone of thoughts, rage funnelling into a compartment she dared not open. Quickly, she sifted through her options. The scapegoat was gone, the Brotherhood, along with Mark, was nearly beyond her reach. Detonations for Paris, Stalingrad and New York were already in motion, unstoppable, irreversible. For a fleeting moment, her eyes revealed the storm inside her. Then she suppressed it, pushing it down hard. The only card she had left to play was London. Stopping her internal deliberation, the overseer turned to Simon, who was still standing near the receiver. Overseer, how would you like the team to proceed? he inquired. I want them to stand down, she replied her voice as icy as the room's chill. Simon's eyes widened momentarily, but he quashed his impulse to question her. As you wish. Picking up the receiver, he frantically patched through and relayed the command. As Simon spoke, Belinda shifted her gaze back to the screen. She took a deep breath, exhaling the tension that had built up within her. It was then that she felt a wet warmth in her palms. Looking down, she discovered that her perfectly manicured nails had dug so deep into her flesh that they had broken the skin in several places. A lot more blood will be spilled today, she mused silently. But just like a wildfire rampaging through a forest, life will renew itself. The only difference is that the animals will soon realise that a deadly fungus lives among them. An endless struggle must ensue as we unroot the old peace by piece. Simon hung up the phone and broke her reverie. It's done. How will we proceed? Call me a Transport, we're going back to London. Also, send Dominic's team to intercept and terminate the London cell immediately. Yes, Overseer, right away. Simon hesitated for a moment, his hand hovering over the phone's receiver. Is the rest of the Great Reset still a go? Just then, the large oval screen flickered back to life. It displayed the remains of a dead librarian sprawled on the cold concrete floor. The Overseer's lips tightened into a mirthless smile. Yes, she finally said, her eyes locked onto the grim scene. I think it is about time Big Brother stepped out of the shadows. Chapter 3 Bloody Saturday It was a Saturday, a lazy day by all accounts, but nothing is ever calm in a city that never sleeps. The dawn light slanted through the skyscrapers, casting long shadows on the streets of New York City. People were spilling out of diners, laughter and the scent of fried food trailing behind them. Emergency workers in their hy gear were finishing their graveyard shifts, trudging back to their vehicles parked along the curbs. Despite the veneer of normalcy, the Big Apple was on the brink, an anarchy simmering just below the surface. This bleak, crime-ridden city was in a constant war with itself. On this precarious morning, Sam Scratch Jackson walked the streets near Madison Square Park. Scratch was a petty thief, No stranger to the struggle, having slept in the park the night before. His eyes scanned the area, always on the lookout for an easy score. A hooded figure in stained blue jeans, he noticed a parked grey van near the park's maintenance driveways. A quick glance around reassured him, no one was paying him any mind. After all, he was small time, a mosquito in a city of larger predators. As Scratch approached the van's driver-side door, he realised the owner had broken the golden rule of the Big Apple. Never leave your shit unlocked. The door popped open with ease. Inside, the cabin was almost brand new, and to his delight, the keys were still in the ignition. This has got to be the easiest score of my life, Scratch thought, a smirk forming on his face as he jumped into the driver's seat and turned the key. The sound of a metallic crack split the silence of the cabin. Scratch lurched forward, almost smashing his nose on the steering wheel. He picked up the broken key, his eyes widening. What the hell? Scratch wasn't Hercules. He knew he wasn't strong enough to snap a key like that. It had already been hanging on by a thread in the ignition, as if it had been kicked or tampered with. Well, Scratch thought, let's see what's behind door number two. Sliding out of the cabin and back into the fresh morning air, he circled around to the back of the van. The double doors at the rear were already slightly ajar. Has this van already been hit? Scratch wondered. Maybe it was Frankie Timber. That bastard's always getting to the good hits first. Scratch grabbed both handles of the van's back doors and swung them open. The sight that greeted him was utterly bewildering. Mounted in the back of the van was a large gray cylindrical object. It was encased in a bird's nest of wires and at its base was a timer with bold red numbers flashing downward. 10 seconds, nine seconds. Scratch's body went into overdrive. He was street smart enough to recognize a pipe bomb when he saw one, but this, this was a monstrous device. Eight seconds. Seven seconds. With no time to lose, he slammed the van door shut and bolted. His sneakers slapped against the concrete as he vaulted over gutters, aiming for the food cart on the opposite corner of the street. Six seconds. Five seconds. Dodge the shrapnel. Dodge the shrapnel, he thought frantically. His confidence wavered. Maybe the van's closed doors and the distance between him and it would offer enough shielding, but adding a metal food cart wouldn't hurt. Four seconds. Three seconds. Scratch! A voice broke into his sprint. It was Frank, a fat bearded man in a jacket, standing near the food cart. Frank held out a stale breakfast burrito, as if the morning were just another ordinary Saturday. Two seconds. Frank, get the hell out of the... The eruption of heat was immense. A fireball two kilometres wide instantly vaporised the surrounding urban landscape. Asphalt, dirt, trees... And even the iconic flatiron building adjacent to the park underwent an instantaneous transformation, solid to liquid to gas, in mere moments. The debris joined the growing mushroom cloud that billowed ominously from the depths of lower Manhattan. The shock wave that followed was relentless. It tore through the grid-laid streets, turning order into chaos in a fraction of a second. Vehicles were lifted off the ground like toys, windows shattered into thousands of shards and the very air seemed to compress, stealing breath from whoever was left to feel it. Next came the demise of the Empire State Building. The iconic 380-meter tower of concrete and glass broke in two as if cut by some invisible blade. The upper half bore the brunt of the expanding blast. Over 100,000 tons of steel, concrete, and glass found themselves launched like missiles over 34th Street, landing clear into 35th. Below, what remained of the city's inhabitants was crushed, consumed in a blaze of burning debris. As the mushroom cloud continued its climb into the stratosphere and fallout began to fill the air, a haunting sight emerged on the horizon. Through the ash and dust, standing alone in this hellscape, was a familiar sight, the Statue of Liberty. Silent and intact on her island, she had been spared the immediate physical destruction that had befallen much of the city. However, Due to the intense heat of the explosion, the iconic copper lady was now smouldering and turned black from head to toe. Her charred remains stood as a monument, adding itself to the grim casualty count on that now infamous Saturday morning. You have been listening to The Great Reset Brotherhood by Blake Hamilton. End